Um, so what I'm going to do first is just enter in where we're going to be going. So that's going to be the local GP. Beacon, 785 meters. Um, maybe about 15 minutes. As Kelly sets up the beacon function in her Soundscape app on her tablet, I get ready to accompany her on a demo walk using this app. Ash, her retired guide dog, wags her tail, eager to go on a walk with us. While still an amazing companion, Kelly does not rely on Ash for assistance anymore. Instead, she utilizes a probing cane and sometimes uses navigation apps like Google Maps and Soundscape. Kelly moves around the city and Soundscape indicates nearby landmarks, street names and shops. It can also be used to set up a sound beacon which gives Kelly a sense of direction and progression towards her goal. This morning, we are preparing to go to her medical center, which is 785 meters away. Approaching intersection. Hilton Drive goes left. This is a report on AI and the visually impaired from the University of Edinburgh. I'm Eric Laurier. I'm a geographer and I study social interaction around maps. You just heard from Daniel Munoz, who studies transport and disability. In this one-off podcast, we describe how visually impaired persons find their way around familiar and unfamiliar places with AI and assistive technologies. Our research project involved us as sighted researchers spending time with blind and partially sighted persons and learning a number of things, one of which was how much trouble the sighted can be. It was another scholar, Alex Taylor, who provided the genesis for our project, Alex had been studying the field trials of a wearable AI for the visually impaired. The AI was designed to provide help in the family home for a young child born blind. For the child, the AI device could, fairly reliably, recognise people in a room and inform him of what they were doing. While the ambitions of the company behind the prototype device were high, its value was in solving what might seem a more modest problem. During family gatherings, the wearable device whispered in the child's ear when someone left the room and when they came back. This might seem minor, but the departures and arrivals of sighted persons are a persistent problem for the blind and partially sighted, because the sighted assume that their arrivals, departures and returns need not be mentioned. They assume that they are seen and noticed. In our research, we're interested in just these sorts of practices that the sighted presume are minor. We're interested in what unexpected or overlooked things get done with old and new technologies. Assistive technologies have traditionally been both expensive and specialised. Early on, the spread of home computers slowly changed that relationship. Smartphones and wearable technologies upended it. Suddenly, Voice interfaces, computer vision, location mapping, and AI were on consumer devices that were portable. While these devices have been adopted by the VI community, unlike assistive technologies, they are not primarily designed for them. Part then of dealing with devices for blind and partially sighted people is working out which to use for what. Ken, one of our pilot participants, picked this up with Daniel. And I, I mix and match, uh, so it's Windows laptop with JAWS and an iPhone with VoiceOver. And it depends depends a lot on what I'm trying to do, which I'll go to first. Uh, how so? Um, with, with email, it's very 
easy to use both. I can, I, I'll use either as, as the primary one. Um, if I'm writing notes for tribunal, mm-hmm. I want to a word processor, that's definitely a laptop job. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing my shopping at the supermarket, I find the app a lot easier than the website. Mm-hmm. So I'll go to the app on the phone in preference to the website. Uh, banking, 50-50. I've got the app. I use the website. I, I do them both. I'll choose the one that suits me. While technologies are proliferating, devoting the time to mix and match them into everyday routines is tied to people's enthusiasm and interest in those particular technologies. Early adopters have the competence to deal with bugs, crashes, missing functions, and other snags of the new. Early adopters in the visually impaired community do something more. They provide solutions from a visually impaired perspective. They are well aware of the problems of the visually impaired. Problems that are often generated by new technology arriving from the sighted, which don't quite work, despite their best intentions and design guidelines. Early adopters help others, like one of our participants, Ken. I would call myself a late adopter. Okay. Um, I'm open to learn, but I don't lead. I'll, I'll wait till others have sorted out the problems first. Mm-hmm. Both from a VI perspective and the mainstream. There are those who are ahead of me, a member of, of Facebook groups mm-hmm. that use some of this technology, and, and they'll be yeah, beta testers and things like that. And I'll, I'll pay attention to what's going on in the users group, listen to some of the chat that's going on there. Blind and visually impaired reviewers are the intermediators between technology development and its widespread use. The podcasts RNIB Tech Talk and Double Top Canada are one of those intermediators. Johnny and myself listened to them to learn more about what technologies were popular, what activities they were actually able to support, and how they were assessed. What might surprise the sighted, surprised us, is that YouTube, a notionally visual medium, seems to be equally as important as podcasts. YouTubers like Joy Ross and Sam of The Blind Life review all sorts of specialist and consumer technologies for the visually impaired and blind. For our participants like Kieran, once a technology has been praised by a reviewer, they still find themselves drawing their own conclusions. Kieran talks about JAWS, which is the screen reader for Windows. Um, then, of course, later on, I got introduced to JAWS. So I use JAWS a lot. Mm-hmm. I use the internet a lot um, to some extent. And um, I do a lot of web testing. And the, and so I'm kind of what I'd call a middle road user. I use my iPhone quite a bit and I use lots of apps on my iPhone. The fact that Kieran continues to test web apps and websites tells us something about the relationship between new technologies and the visually impaired community. They are routinely testing because the device and apps aren't typically trialled in real-world settings to the extent that they are for the ordinary sighted consumer. As I said at the outset, Daniel and myself are interested in wayfinding and transport. In workshop discussions, Kelly talked about the navigational planning that she does to minimise the changes of routes and modes that go with any journey. Um, I would normally use my iPad. I don't have a PC at the moment. So my normal research is using my iPad and I normally use uh, Google Maps for that. Um, so what I will then do is I will um, find, the, find the post office and then from there I will find the simplest journey that I can to get there. So for example, let's say there's like one way that would get me there like in maybe 40 minutes, but it involves two to three different buses. Mm. Comparatively, if there is a route that it lets me have like 
one bus and then like like one bus that gets me all the way there but it's like about an hour i will likely go for that over the two bus option because mm. it is less effort to get on one thing than the other yes. and just it means that i won't need to transition in the middle getting off a bus dealing with an unfamiliar bus stop boarding another bus the complexities and sheer work of doing so for the visually impaired mean that the notionally longer journey of one bus route is balanced out by avoiding the hassle of changing vehicles. The smartphone, with its built-in camera, has brought the possibility of human assistance, which could reduce that hassle. But listening to our participants left us with a more radical lesson about AI and its utility for visually impaired people. Our participants helped us understand that introducing more AI technologies should not mean supplanting human assistance. Before we deal with AI in detail, We'll start with the smartphone and the audio navigation apps such as Soundscape for walking. They're not the simple equivalent for visual perception. They bring different information and different perspectives on an environment, different from those of sighted pedestrians. What they do offer changes not just navigation, but also the sociability of the journey. Marker, Sixth Temple. Ken and I meet at Waverly Station to do a demo walk using Soundscape. While he knows his own neighborhood exceptionally well, he sometimes uses the app when walking around Edinburgh's new town. Soundscape will usually complement his knowledge about the area with additional bits of information. We walk down Princess Street, chatting about navigation apps, urban crowds, and the impact of COVID-19 in closed shops, which the app still announces as open. Ken keeps his attention on our trajectory, our conversation, and on soundscape cues on his headphones, which he shares with me from time to time. And, you know, it's, like, it's announced that the Scott Monument is to my left, yeah, on the other side of the road, and there's a small monument just below the Scott Monument, which it also announced. I think it's David's living... I uh, can't remember who it was. It, said, it did tell me who it was. Most people don't even notice it's there because it's very much smaller than the Scott Monument. Yeah, indeed. And uh, so yeah, I actually know more about Princess Street than most people do. Because of, thanks Be to Soundscape. Because Soundscape's telling me everything. Oh, right. Whereas most people only notice the big things. Daniel and myself, as researchers, are particularly interested in interaction. What caught our attention is that the device is doing announcements. In person-to-person -person conversations, doing announcements well requires and expects a mutual sense of the activities that are to be done. It requires an announcement to be said in a relevant and timely fashion. Soundscape doesn't do that. That isn't to say that Soundscape isn't a valuable resource. Let's divert for a moment to compare it with an AI-based assistance app called Ira. Although AI is involved, the AI is at the other end of a link where it is used by a human professional. The human agent uses their superior sense of the situation to provide information in what are usually delicately fitted announcements from them in relation to, for example, their user approaching and then crossing a road in traffic. Using the camera, they can see the traffic approaching and adjust what they're saying so that, for instance, just as a car approaches, they can pause for a moment and then continue once it's passed. If we go back then to Ken and Soundscape, 
Soundscape provides an independence for Ken. It is Ken that is provided with different, yet relevant locational things to talk about compared to Daniel. The payoff is that Ken is then able and entitled to tell Daniel something about each location, reversing the usual asymmetry of the sighted person telling their visually impaired companion about what is around them on their walk. It's easy to overlook that walking together, whether it is shopping or mountaineering, is a shared and social experience. Remarking on what we see is one of its pleasures. Yet, one problem of the constant announcement from apps like Soundscape is, of course, that like a pedestrian companion constantly naming everything, it doesn't know when and how to stop. So yeah, I'm just getting commentary about all the different shops I'm passing, which is getting boring. So we'll not... Right, not, at not, some not, point you just sewn up, sewn out, I guess? Yeah, basically that. You, you just... I've, I remember asking people... So this is Hanover Street. So yeah. actually what we're going to do is go to the crossing on the left here, okay. which also sounds, and we're going to go across, back across Princess Street. Okay, so to the Christmas market. Oh, is it still here? Okay. While the constant announcements from Soundscape can be as boring as a laundry checklist, they sometimes provide Ken with just what he needs to be aware of, to be the one that initiates the next move in walking together. In that way, Soundscape reverses the stereotypical pairing of the sighted person as leader and the visually impaired person as follower. Be My Eyes is an app staffed by volunteers, which is similar to the commercial app Ira. Kieran highlighted the value of borrowing the eyes of the volunteer for brief ad hoc tasks. Yeah, well, the ideal dream is, uh, I quite like Be My Eyes, um, but it is quite reliant on volunteers, so it's a bit of a hit and miss in terms of um, if you get a good volunteer or not. But the thing with the Be My Eyes is you can interact with the person. And yeah. because you can interact with them, you can then you can have that conversation so that person knows what you're looking for and you know what, what, they, what they need from you. And 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 be my eyes has been really useful because I've had tried it for things like um, see if my bread's gone off or not. Um, oh yeah, potatoes look funny. <laughs> so that human interaction makes it makes a big difference, um, and and they they're really useful for things like um, if you you quickly want somebody to tell you what um, a packaging of something is because. They'll tell you, turn it this way, turn it that way, there it is, we can spot it now. And yeah. you've got that bit more interaction. Yeah. But if a, an, an AI piece of tech could do exactly the same, that would be fine. It's a long-standing weakness of AI in the form of computer vision that it lacks our sense of the situation. It's not only computer vision. Voice interfaces using AI speech recognition and response also struggle with the subtleties of human conversation. Compared to the Be My Eyes volunteer or the IRA professional, AI is just not very good at helping steer the phone camera toward where Kieran's bread or potatoes are. AI cannot join in with making sense of what is happening efficiently and progressively, because not only does it not have the same sense of the situation, it is not aware that it is joining in or not, or being helpful or not. So we may sound like we are saying that AI cannot help. Not at all. The array of technologies under the umbrella term of AI play important parts in a complicated assembly of assistance. Agency remains an abiding problem for it. Not the agency of the AI, but of its user. And this is particularly marked when it meets the visually impaired community, where their agency is already a vexed issue. 
During one of the RNIB Tech Talk episodes, the hosts compared their human assistant with the sighted people in the street that try to help. While people in the street have good intentions, they routinely grab you or pull you and get too close in trying to help. Whereas summoning help via an app, it's on your terms, as they put it. You control when you are assisted and how you are assisted. AI tech, at its best, recognises and responds to the agency of its visually impaired users. It feels like um, even there's, there's been quite a few developments in terms of AI. Uh, they're not quite there yet. And the subtle differences with uh, human assistance are becoming more and more obvious like that, like that intuitiveness that you were mentioning. Um, yeah, I think with, with AI, you always need to have some way that you can have a human interaction at some point with it. So even if you have the AI and it does what it needs, you still need a backup somewhere in the system where you can connect to a human being if it's not working quite right. Kieran was being generous around AI needing a backup somewhere. The myth and promise of AI is its very problem. Its myth is that it will work everywhere and all the time, that it will solve all the problems of people who are partially sighted or blind. It will do everything, know everything, and be your friend. A central part of the myth is the myth of AI as complete autonomy for the machine and correspondingly for the human. When we talked about AI in our pilot, it meant many things to many different people and covered an assortment of specific technologies. What we heard were stories with a different sense of autonomy, of visual recognition and mapping technologies being cooperatively incorporated into sites of everyday activities, checking on potatoes, chatting while we walk in the city and planning our travels. In actually using AI and other assistive technologies, it was clear that our participants wanted to keep human helpers in these systems of support. In fact, they pointed out to us that there are too few visually impaired helpers, even though they are likely best placed to help other visually impaired users, help them make sense of what a thing with AI can actually do. One of the places that we do find this happening is in the work of Sight Scotland, Visibility Scotland, on the RNIB podcasts and the blind YouTubers broadcasts. As Richard Baker from Sight Scotland put it in our workshop. We were talking about where we go from this in the future and how we get more actors and more people involved in this discussion. And it strikes me as a really important time and moment to do so because we, we know from what's happened over the past two years that actually the world's never been less accessible in many ways for disabled people, including you know, visually impaired people. There'd be more and more restrictions on which may be in place for quite a while. And things like, you know, as well, COVID passports, tests, they're all, they've actually raised some big issues around a complete lack of inaccessibility. And also things like, you know, um, street design and street features changing at last minute. So this is a very good time to involve decision makers and policy makers in this issue. And that's because we, they, they're not taking on our knowledge of our experience. And I think, I think there's something about listening to that. And that's why I always think, wherever possible, always have a vision impaired person at the background. What has been central to our ambitions in the pilot project is that people were brought in ahead of a larger project that we'd like to do. The pilot has allowed us to shape what it will be from its inception. In future research, our hope is to understand the everyday activities into which visually impaired users draw upon AI assistance, whatever it might be, in whatever device, in whatever wonderful, weird, and unexpected situations. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast was made possible through the contribution of many different people and organizations. We would like to thank in particular the Bay Center at the University of Edinburgh for funding for the pilot project, especially Miguel Bernabeu. The Institute of Geography and the Lived Environment for providing a grant for this podcast. Music and audio production was by Pablo Acuna for sharing their thoughts, ideas and experiences with us. Jamie Bruce from Visibility Scotland, Richard Baker from Sight Scotland, Angus Dixon, Kieran Said, Kelly Dingwall, Ken Reed, Rebecca Cupit, and Christopher McLaughlin. In the aftercast, myself and Daniel are joined by Chris Speed from Design Informatics at the University of Edinburgh. We talk around various issues, and I think these will mainly be of interest to people who do social science and humanities research, but maybe of interest to other people too. There's also a more extended recording of our discussion, which we'll provide a link to on the podcast. You had worked before, so you, you so in terms of the three of us, you're the one who's worked before with visually impaired people. Yeah, I had the, the I had the opportunity to work with uh, visually impaired people um, before as part of my PhD in 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 Santiago in Chile. I had already encountered the limitations of my own assumptions as a, as a sighted person, and the types of things that um, I thought would be relevant and weren't later on in the, uh, doing field work or vice versa, stuff that I didn't anticipate and then became quite important to that relationship between you know, researcher and participant. And, but I think overall, because the, the, the methods I used back then were in a way similar to the ones we used in this project, which were basically, let's go out, let's take the bus together, let's go for a, for a walk, and cross the street and, and get somewhere. Uh, that that uh, practice of doing something together uh, became the probably the most enlightening aspect of, of doing research with, with visually impaired people because it made relevant and made obvious that um, the question is it goes beyond whether what is what is what really happened, but rather how did we accomplish that? How 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 did we develop this sense of working together as a, as a couple of people who are, you know, navigating a busy street and trying to get, find somewhere, someplace and get there? And I think that that uh, ongoing development of a sense of, of doing something together, uh, even though we may have, we may bring different abilities to the table, I guess, there is still the emergence of this shared uh, way of being in space and making sense of things around you. Yeah, whereas Chris and I were a very good example of the kind of worst kind of sighted researchers who, despite the best <laughs> intentions, <laughs> um, had very very little experience of um, close or working relationships with people with visual impairments. So did all the wrong things, but in a, in a good way in that it surfaced um, lots of the kinds of things that unwitting yet somehow trying to be helpful sighted person does. They were very forgiving. They were very patient with us as well. So, and we are thankful for that. And, and Chris and I are a little bit better now at um, doing what we do. I was there most of the time with the participants, uh, walking around the city, trying out soundscape, you know, having a conversation, uh, accomplishing crossing the street together. So, of course, we were documenting and then we, we would look at the video again or listen to the audio again. But having been part of those doings that 
to me was the the main element of that that stuck with me. It's just having having been part of those moments of well, how are we going to solve this? How are how are we going to navigate this very crowded high street in in, in Edinburgh or uh, find our way around in in some other places uh, or in or in the kitchen? Uh, so that um, presence, even though it was. Um, in part, uh, its goal was to to document what was going on. I also immersed myself in the in the situation. That became like the main layer of what stuck with me. Video or audio may be the outcome of having been out there with the participants doing things, but it was that doing that produced all that kind of material, and that and that event that shared uh, experience was at the very center of it. And it was, again, in the workshop, retelling stories, uh, sharing moments and, and sometimes memories or expectations for the future. That was also very, very central, I think, to this project. The specificness of, of um, working with the visually impaired community is, the community is plural, of course, in fact, uh, and individuals, is it also helps, I think, disrupt that sense of we could know what was going on because our access to the situation perceptually is different. And so that sort of differential um, sensory access to what's happening helped disrupt the sort of sense or the, that ongoing danger of doing research where you're making recordings that we could get to the bottom of what someone really saw or really experienced or what they were really doing. Because, yeah, already you, you don't necessarily have the same access to what's happening as other participants in that setting. Um, and that's a really sort of useful reminder. Yeah, Absolutely. What I really wanted to talk about, Chris, because it was so striking with you, was this sort of re- the assumptions of the cited and the reliance of, of um, cited researchers on particular resources to do their job and the kinds of problems immediately with then sort of imposing that on visually impaired and, and blind persons. And then don't do that. That's a real mistake. But then completely pulling the rug out from under your feet, because one of the ways, much more so than Daniel and I, you work is in a very... Oh, something managed to ping. <laughs> One of the ways that you work is in a, a, a much more visual register. So things are often laid out on, um, what was it you called them? The Canvases. We, we use a, well, we use an yeah. online tool called Miro, um, but it's essentially a design thinking tool. So whether we did it in person with pieces of paper, post-its and sharpies, or whether we mirror that into Miro, an online tool. But yes, it is visual design thinking to unpack this. As soon as we're in the workshop, Chris, I could sort of see you had that moment of, I can't have a whiteboard, so what? how do I work? And so part of what we were having to, to do, given this was the first time we were doing this kind of workshop, was then have a rethink on the spot of, well, how do we do this then? If, there's, if, um, if I can't simply rely on a whiteboard to jot ideas down, to lay them out and work out what the relation is between one another. Yeah, although what was great was the storytelling. Do you remember those scenarios we set out? What was the job to be done? And we invented a scenario of getting to a small village, happened to be where I live, and posting a letter. Um, and then actually, I don't think that relied on a visual register because it was a job to be done, which was shared across a whole bunch of communities with different abilities. And actually, that, that worked. Do you remember? There was a moment that, oh, hang on, the storytelling, the journey, the job to be done works. And then Chris can let go of the fact whether a post-it <laughs> is a device to document 
a pain point on that journey or an instance on that journey. And actually then it turned to be quite conversational. We did have some physical artifacts just almost to act as nodes along the way, to feel, to hold, to become coordinates. But thankfully, storytelling to anticipate that journey held us together. I think when we thought about that journey map, that job to be done, it allowed people to evoke certain tools, certain apps that they used to hire along that way. So, But there was a great moment of, ah, Chris has travelled down a, a visually dominant, an ocular assumption here. <laughs> and it was an awful existential moment, Eric, trust me. Um, even though, actually, um, Daniel had brought along lots of material, physical things that I think members of the team who were present could hold and organise physically along a journey, as well as those perhaps online which were able to zoom into a Miro account. Ironically, I think we had to have a, a mirror, didn't we, online, so those could see and then in the room could feel. Um, but thankfully, storytelling and journeys got us through. I, I think you're making an, a very interesting point because we didn't really know when, when, we, when we brought all these pieces, board game pieces and, uh, you know, like um, uh, tactile uh, elements just to see if, if if people would use them. We we weren't sure they were going to work. Yeah, they did to an extent, but I think you're hitting it on the head when you say that it's uh that's a, a, it was mainly about telling stories. And we were very fortunate that our, our participants in the in the project were uh, amazing storytellers, and they they were very able to to to, to paint you a picture to 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 kind of get you in a certain scenario and, and describe interestingly and in a memorable memorable way uh, the kind of circumstances they would face in a in accomplishing a particular task. 